rightly understood, the Christian life is not an escape, but it is warfare. It is not a picnic, it is a battle. A battle not against flesh and blood, but against that unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Rightly understood. Those are ways to describe the the Christian life. Jesus has made clear in the Gospels that with his arrival, the kingdom has come. The king has come in him, and in that the kingdom has come. And as the kingdom is advancing on all various fronts, personally, culturally, in every way, as the kingdom lands and is advancing, of course, as it is advancing, it meets resistance, right? Stands to reason because another king's rule is being displaced. So as the kingdom advances, there is resistance. And with that, in that fight, in that battle, inwardly and outwardly, there will be struggle. There will be sin. There will be falls. There will be failures. And we talked about this last week, towards the the end of last week's message, that given the bonds that tie us as brothers and sisters in Christ together, we have to adopt this mantra, this truism, truly in that fight, in that struggle, as one falls. We have to know and, and just be firmly committed to this idea of no man left behind. No man left behind. The bonds are that real, that strong. We are, each of us, responsible for all of us. That's how we landed last week. Here's the question before us this week, as we move on through this section of Matthew 18. How does that flesh itself out? Practically speaking, what what does it mean to say that each of us is responsible for all of us? What would it mean practically on the ground, day by day, in my relationship with you and your relationship with me and one another? What would it look like for those things to, to unroll, to unfold? What does it mean for us to adopt a mentality, an image, an understanding of who we are and how we have, need to understand ourselves to be in our mission when one goes astray, when one falls, that we have to be a combat search and rescue team. What does that mean? How does that unfold? That's where we're going now today. Matthew 18, picking up where we left off last week. Really, the whole of this chapter is really in the, at the meta level about, about this, about relationships and how we're doing the Christian life together. Matthew 18, we're looking at just verses 15 through 20, okay? So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Matthew is the the first of the four Gospels, uh, the first of the books in the New Testament. We're in the 18th chapter in this long extended series, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, moving on, pressing on into verse uh, 20. Hear now the word of God. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please give us ears with which to hear these things. We thank you that you have not just left us with grand principles of, of telling us of, the, of a necessity to live at peace with one another, of, of that as kind of an ideal picture. And indeed, it is what you call us to do, what you call us to, to be. So completely countercultural, so completely counterintuitive when we're honest. But Lord, you love us enough and you, and you know us so well that you have given us particulars. You have not given us just a, a grand direction, but steps and promises and assurances. But even that we have to confess here at the outset, is counterintuitive. We don't want to do these things. Rather than being peacemakers, we would much rather be peace fakers or peace breakers. We would much rather hide or attack. You have in mind something very different. It is driven by formed by, shaped by, compelled by the gospel of grace. And we ask that you would give us eyes with which to see that, all of that, here this morning. Meet us where we are. You know where we are, even better than we ourselves do. Meet us there. Push us further, we pray, in your name, in your name. Amen. Here's a question. How do we gauge the worth of something to another person? A particular object, a particular thing. How do we gauge? How do we understand? How do we come to grapple with the value that they are putting on that particular thing? Well, it's not that hard, really. Uh, we just need to have an eye towards the trouble that they take to protect it or recover it. Right? That's your gauge. So some of you may know that the ancient Roman city of Pompeii was covered in a mountain of volcanic ash, say, roughly 2,000 years ago when Mount Vesuvius blew its top. Archaeologists still today are learning a lot from being right there literally on the ground and, and under the ground. Uh, they're on that site. Uh, a lot of amazing things that they're discovering, insights into that time period in Roman history uh, in the, the digs that they're doing. One recent discovery, some of you may have heard about this, it was just this past spring, was a skeleton of, of a man that they, that they found uh, there on site without a head. Now, that seemed odd. Where the head was, there was this giant stone block. Well, excuse me, where the head was supposed to be was this giant stone block. Now, this blew up some areas of the Internet. It was a meme that just went viral. This was truly the world's unluckiest man. Here he is fleeing from a, a flaming volcano, trying to get away, only to be slain by a flying stone that crushes his head. 
truly the world's unluckiest man. Such was the idea. Until, well, it was discovered that there was a little bit more to the story. So let me pick up on a little news article that I was looking at this past week. The team kept digging after making the discovery. They eventually found the skull. Remember the skull was missing? They found the skull in a tunnel that had been opened during a previous excavation. And it turned out the man had been asphyxiated. The tunnel where the intact skull was found also revealed the sometimes sloppy work of previous generations. Back then, they'd often bore through walls looking for precious items. Today's process is much slower and more methodical, even sifting through what had been discarded in previous excavations. Now they use hammers that record wave velocity to detect how the ancient walls are holding up now that they've been exposed to the environment. And laser scanners and drones record what they find and where they find it so it can be passed down to future generations of archaeologists. It really is amazing. It really is astonishing, the technology and the trouble that these archaeologists are taking in, in such digs. But it does beg a question, if, if, uh, if you're thinking, why go to all that trouble? I mean, who cares? Why go to all that trouble? Why don't you just plow through, bore through the wall like the last uh, generations did? And again, it has to do with the question we prompted ourselves with before. It has to do with the value of the thing. It has to do with the value of the thing, the desire to preserve it, to protect it, to recover it, which takes us to our text this morning. And what the Bible has to tell us about interpersonal conflict and biblical peacemaking. What the scriptures are showing us here is that there is trouble to be taken because of what is at stake. There's trouble to be taken because of what is at stake. People, relationships, eternal souls. There's much trouble to be taken because of who and what is at stake. It's coming out very clearly here in this text. Matthew 18, again, just kind of taking a big step back. I'm not going to re-preach three sermons now, but, but verses 1 through 9, you know, kind of taking a step back, we began to see that this was about who we are, really, before the Lord, and how we are to understand, how we are to think of ourselves. That was verses 1 through 9. Then verses 10 through 14, where we were last week, was not just who we are, but whose we are. And the implications of that in terms of how he views us and how he treasures us. And as we looked at last week, we landed on this idea that he cares for his own through his own. Remember that? He cares for his own through his own, which takes us to where we're landing now this week. And the idea last week, we were seeing this in verses 10 through 14, is that the Lord's love for his own is an astonishing thing. He wants our hearts to be captured by that. The Lord's love for his own is an astonishing thing. Well, this week's text, springing right off of that, flowing right out of that, it's not just his love for his own is an astonishing thing, but the means of his love for his own is an astonishing thing as well how that plays out, how that works out, how he intends to love us so is an astonishing thing. And he wants not only our hearts to be captured by that, but for us to walk carefully in those ways, to heed those means, those astonishing 
means, through which he works to love us as he does. What are those astonishing means? If you've got your outline there in your bulletin, you can see that. It's basically two points, two things, two things we could say are his astonishing means. One is a process. We'll call it a necessary process. And then the second thing, basically the second half of the passage is it's a, the necessary assurances that free us, that compel us, enable us to walk out that process. The one, or the one leading to the other, the second undergirding the first. Okay, So let's look at this together. First, the, the necessary process, these steps, these stages that we see here in verses uh, 15 through 17. Now, before we start digging into that, just let me make a, uh, not a disclaimer, just an explanation. This is about a, a word that we, we'll just label it as discipline. Okay. Now, there are two types of discipline in all of life. In all of life. One would just be formative, formative discipline. That's just ordinary. And in terms of the Christian life, specifically formative discipline, what is that? That is just regular time in the scriptures, reading, and in prayer, and services like this, in times of fellowship, in our community groups, all of those types of things. That's formative discipline. That's where 99% of the Christian life takes place. Okay? But there's another type, not formative, but restorative. And that comes to bear when we get off track, when we've gone astray, when we are not living and thinking and being in the ways that our Lord calls us to. That's what Jesus is addressing here. Not the formative type of discipline, but the restorative type. It's vital, it's important that we can get back into the, the formative, if you will. So with that, we'll start with verse 15, and we see that it begins privately, one-on-one. -on -one. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Okay, throughout these stages, we're going to be tacking back and forth between the world's counsel and our Lord's commands that are starkly different. The world's counsel at this point is tolerance. Live and let live. Who am I, this false humility says, who am I to say anything to this person in what I'm seeing before me? Who am I? That's the world's concern. That's the world's counsel, rather. In contrast to that, stark contrast to that, Jesus' command is, when we see a brother or a sister going astray, ensnared in sin, we are not just advised to, counseled to, but commanded to, to go to them. To go to them in love. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say here in terms of just maybe just sharpening this, because actually I said that 99% of the Christian life is the, the formative discipline. When you're looking at restorative discipline right here, I'll say 99% of the cases stop right with this, this first stage. So it would be helpful to be clear and what Jesus is saying at this point. So the, the first thing is, this is about sin. This is a not about someone's annoying behavior, their habits that you just don't like. That's not what this is about. This is about sin. That's the first thing. This is all, so, and I would also add that this is about the necessity of going, not just sitting back and sulking, not engaging in a cold war, not withdrawing like we all tend to do, many of us, but going going, and to go one-on-one -on -one 
to go one-on-one, individually, privately, as Jesus says here. Why? Obviously, so that we can decrease the tension just a little bit and minimize the chance that that other individual is going to find themselves getting defensive. If you do that publicly, initially, of course that's what's going to happen. And you're going to get nowhere. Jesus not just counsels but commands us to go, to address sin, and to do so carefully and do so privately. Now, that said, if that fails, and sadly sometimes it does, there's another step to be taken. Verse 16, witnesses come to play into play. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, the world's counsel at this point would be, hmm, mass your forces. It's time to leverage. It's time to tell everyone. It's time to blow it up on social media. Embarrass them. Pressure them. That's the world's counsel. Jesus' command is anything but that. It is rather, if in fact you can't resolve things one-on-one, interpersonally, individually, then bring another two, one or two individuals involved wisely and appropriately to help you, to help them move through the issue. And they are to be witnesses. This is quoting back from the Old Testament, what Jesus is tapping into here. And the witnesses of what? Possibly witnesses of the initial offense. Possibly, but certainly witnesses of the attempts at reconciliation and able to assist and guide and aid All right, that takes us to the third step, though. What if that fails? Well, then we get the church involved, the body itself. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. All right, well, the world's counsel here would be, I'm done. You've exhausted me. We've done all we can. Walk away. We're done with you. Uh, which would do what, by the way? What would the result of that be? If we just like wash our hands of that and walk away, absolve ourselves of all responsibility. We are now allowing the damage to continue and the cancer to spread. Right? Our Lord's command to us at this stage is hardly do that, but rather if in fact things have unfolded to this point. Things have, I'll just use the word, degenerated to this point. His command to us is, um, well, to expand the circle of the individuals involved who can then come to bear, come and, and help us with this problem. Now, by the way, when he says get the church involved, he's not, he's, in no way does he mean like, you know, Brother Ed should stand up in the middle of a Sunday morning worship service and make an announcement. That is not what this means at all. What this means is you bring in the church elders. The leadership of the church is brought in at this point. Uh, That's what uh, the the idea here, clearly what Jesus has in mind. But that may not work either. What then? Well, you keep reading through verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. World's counsel, what would it be here? Judge not, lest you be judged. 
Oh, my goodness. I want to scream. My head's about to blow up. That is one of the most misunderstood, misused, and abused passages in all of Scripture. Maybe the, one of the best known at the surface level. Like, I know the words, but the vast majority of people have no clue about what the text is actually getting at. That is not in any way a, a right usage, a right quotation of that text. Let, let me actually have you go to your quotes and notes, this little insert in your bulletin, the one at the very top from a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, theologian uh, from uh, the early part of the 20th century. He was a martyr uh, under the Nazi regime, uh, executed at a concentration camp. This is what he wrote in a little book uh, that he uh, well, wrote in li called Life Together. It's the first one at the top, nothing is more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Now think about that. We think to be a Christian is to be nice. Now what does being nice mean? Not saying anything, not doing anything to disturb anybody. That is not in any way what we're called to be. I'm, just, I'm not saying we're called to be mean. That's the problem. We talk about not being nice and we go to the other extreme. That's not what this is about. We're talking about what is love. That's what Bonhoeffer is after here. Nothing is more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing is more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. The world's counsel is foolishness. Jesus' command here is if, if things have degenerated to this point, if they will not listen at the one-on-one -on -one level and bringing in the witnesses and then bringing in the leadership of the church, and then at that point, you cannot pretend as though nothing has happened. You cannot live with that brother or sister as though they are somehow a member in good standing of your church because they're not. Because they're not. And this is what the technical terms, and you may be familiar with this, this is what leads then to a process called excommunication, where they are reckoned not to be a member of that body, which is done. I know that sounds harsh, but why is it done? For their good, for reclaiming their soul. It's done for their benefit, for their good. For Also, I would add, for the, the benefit of the, of the larger church and the witness of the, of the community as well, for those, those are at stake here as well. In essence, what we, we have to say at that point is, my friend, you are living as though you are an unbeliever. You are forcing us now to treat you as such. You are living as an unbeliever you are forcing us into a position where we have to treat you as such with a desire to win you back. With a fervent, heartfelt desire to win you back. This is the necessary process in terms of what faithfulness to Jesus looks like when a brother or sister has strayed. Again, I know it sounds harsh. It's not very nice. I also recognize that it can be abused, and it is. But as one of my seminary professors oftentimes said, and he would say it in Latin, and I don't remember how that went, but I re remember the roughly the English translation, and that is abuse does not constitute uh, no use. 
Abuse does not constitute no use or unuse. Rather, right use. I think when we just take a step back, how many of us watch young families in action, right? And you see parents and the good, beautiful work that they have done in teaching and training their children and who are willing to correct them in a loving, appropriate way, and we admire that. That's a beautiful picture. Or how many of us, uh, maybe we went through it ourselves, or we can uh, just watch, and we, music teachers, right? Music teachers who are willing to correct the mistakes of their students, right? That they might then flourish in their gifts. Or, or how many of us as parents or grandparents, aunts and uncles, whatever, or just friends of families are so thrilled to see when we go to academic, not athletic events, and we can watch these coaches pressing pushing the, these children that we love and care for so much to their limits so that they will excel, so that they will do better than they ever could have done otherwise. We, we see all of that, whether we're watching families or an art class or an athletic team. We love that. We cherish that. We admire that. That's all discipline, you know. Can we not, should we not, feel, see, speak of this the same way. A few points I want to raise here in terms of application and other implications of what we're seeing here. I didn't touch on it already, just kind of big pictures, some things to carry home with you. One would be the pattern that you can see as you move through these steps and these stages. And the pattern is simply this. As you progress, as things get harder, the circle is expanding. The circle of people that are involved is expanding. But the idea is throughout to keep that circle of people who are involved as small as possible for as long as possible. You don't blow it up and enlarge it any more than you have to. You minimize it all throughout this process. That's, that's one thing to point out. Another is the goal. Did you know how many times Jesus says if he doesn't listen? The, the flip side of that is what is the desire then? Positively speaking, the desire is that they would listen. The desire is that they would listen, that, that what they would hear, that they would be gained. That's the word that he actually recovered, reclaimed, saved from their folly, from their sin. That's the desire. The desire here is not to punish. It's not to exact a pound of flesh to get revenge, to, to speak our anger into their lives. That is not the goal here at all. It is not to punish, it is to love, it is compassion, it is not the, the hatred of ambivalence, it's the passionate love that gets engaged, that comes alongside, that is willing to get in, down in the, into the weeds and in the muck. It's the purpose, it's the goal. And the impulse throughout, we haven't read this text this morning, this, this, this one verse, but this is the verse that sets the course of everything we've been looking at so far this morning. Just back up one verse, verse 14. Chapter 18, verse 14. As we were looking at this last week in the parable of the lost sheep, and that's what sets in motion Jesus' teaching here in verses 15 and following. Verse 14 is the theme of all of this. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And you see, as we're walking through this, these steps, 
as we're going through this process, through these stages, you know what we're having the opportunity to do? To imitate our Father's love. And not just that, but to be instruments of that love in the lives of these people that he cares for. That's what this process is about. Imitating our Father's love and being instruments of that love in his hands and the lives of people around us. The means, back to what we were saying earlier, the means of the Lord's love for his own is astonishing. It really is. His love alone, just what we talked about last week, just we could stay there. The love he has for his own, that, that just right there is astonishing. But all the more so are the means. The means by which he expresses that love, that he would use us in any poor way is an astonishing thing as well. And we need to heed those means, which takes us to the second point, not nearly as long as the first, but it is absolutely vital to grapple with, otherwise we won't go anywhere with the first. It's an engine with no fuel. It's a plane with no wings. Uh, these assurances. Because the, the, the responsibility of walking through that process is so huge. And so too are the stakes, and so too are the difficulties, and so too are the, well, just the hindrances, the barriers, internally as well as externally. And so we need more than just pointers and direction in terms of a process. We need a promises and assurances. And oh, does he give those. Oh, my goodness. The first thing we see is this pronouncement of the Father. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, these expressions might seem a little puzzling. Not, it's not that hard when you think about it. Okay, we're talking about entrance, talking about doorway, talking about access, moving from one place to another. So to bind, to bind in that sense is to forbid entry, is to block, to close it off. To loose is to permit entry, to permit access, to open the way. Okay, so that's what Jesus means here. We're speaking of binding and loosing. Language, by the way, that he used back in speaking to Peter and the disciples in chapter 16, but in that context, it was about the proclamation of the gospel itself in the binding and loosing. Here, specifically uh, to, to this context in recovering those who've gone astray. Something else, not just the expressions, but the authority, uh, authority that's invested in the leadership of the church that is real but delegated. It is not absolute, but it is real. Real, but delegated. In this process, as you get towards the end stages, the leaders of the church are called upon to speak, and they speak with authority, but they do not speak on their own behalf. They speak as the representatives of the chief shepherd, as the under-shepherds. And the verb tenses are vital to note here. I don't know what translation you have. I'm reading from the ESV. There are footnotes down at the bottom of the page that make this very clear. Where it says, we saw the same thing back in chapter 16, where it says that whatever you loose on earth shall 
be loosed in heaven or whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Another way to understand that is not just shall be loosed or bound in heaven, but shall have been. You see the distinction there? So it's not a future, it's not a prediction, it's an assurance that what you are declaring, what the leaders are asserting and declaring has already been asserted and declared by Jesus himself. It's now just being vocalized in this earthly context. That's astonishing. I mean, think about that. But that's what the resurrected Jesus is saying to his churches regarding this astonishing means by which and through which he loves his own. And if we're, 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 I know it's difficult to grapple with, but he knows that. And so he gives us a reiteration just to press it harder. In verse 19, so we looked at verse 18, verse 19, just read it again. Again? So, no, he asks, why do you say again? Because you're repeating, but you're also emphasizing something. Parents, you can probably identify with this. Repeating and emphasizing something that's just been said. Verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, or has been done for them by my Father in heaven. This reiteration is just amazing what he's saying here. Now, this, it is, by the way, it's a particular promise. This is not a blank check. You know, a couple of you get together, you ask for, you know, whatever, lottery tickets, that's cool. That's not, it's a particular promise for a particular context it's not a blank check. But if your heart is engaged in this process and you want the restoration, you want to see something happen beautiful and sweet, this is exactly the news you want to hear. This is exactly what you want to hear. It is all you could hope for. It is absolutely all that you could hope for as you're engaged in the struggle in this process. So you have the pronouncement of the Father that's the first thing in terms of these assurances that we have, this pronouncement, this promise of the Father, and that as though that wasn't enough, as though that wasn't enough, we also have the presence of the Son. That's where you get to verse 20. So let's look at that. Again, another, a particular promise for a specific context for, so it's clearly connected to what's just been said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The first thing I should point out is this implicit claim to deity that Jesus is making. here, And it's just like, just assume, offhand. It's like, that makes no sense unless he's God. It's just this, like, rolling right off his lips. And that's just something we need to continually grapple and, and struggle with, the fact that, that Jesus of Nazareth, fully in the flesh, at the same time is fully God. And he's just saying it. Matter-of-factly, yep. But with that assertion comes also this guarantee. Put it this way. How do we know? How can we be sure that, in fact, the Father is going to do and act in this way, as he said, recorded in verses 18 and 19? You know how we know? We know because Jesus, the Son, has promised to be with us, right alongside of us, in the whole thing. That's how we know. The Son is right there with us. The 
necessary process. Oh my goodness. And it's the, the grade, the, the difficulty. Um, by that I don't mean like academic grades. I mean like mounting a hill, climbing, ascending. Difficult, a struggle, the, the, the barriers, the things that we will encounter within and without. That process, and oh my goodness, here are these undergirded with these amazing, astonishing, head-scratching, heart-stretching assurances of the Father's pronouncement and the Son's presence. Think with me of trail angels for a moment. You know what a trail angel is? They actually exist. They're not little gnomes that live under the ground, by the way. Trail angels, if, if you hike the Appalachian Trail, it's true in other places as well, but here's an example. On the, the, the AT, which is some 2,184 miles, north-south, south-north. Same measurement, either way you go. Um, but, but a trail angel are individuals, locals, who live in close proximity to the trail, who grab a cooler, fill it with refreshments, and just put it there beside the trail so that the hiker, the, the journeyman or journeywoman, as they're making their way up or down that trail, innumerable stories and, and dramatic testimonies of person after person after person over the, the, the decades. Their stamina completely spent. The only thing that, that kept them going was stumbling upon what the trail angel had provided. What my point is, is that these assurances are trail angels. No other way to keep going. No other way even to get going without these assurances of the Father's pronouncement and the, the, the Son's presence, especially when you consider some of these obstacles, the difficulties, the barriers, the steepness of the grade. All the, let me just give you three, just three. There are so many more we could talk about. One would be, in terms of a barrier, what, would, what we would struggle with would be our own past experience or, or the other party's past experience or maybe the church's past experience. Maybe we've gone and tried something like this and it was abused, misused, and all of that, and so we're really hesitant. In fact, just maybe not just hesitant, maybe hostile. Maybe some of you are breaking out in hives. I say that kind of jokingly, but I'm sorry. I, really, I, I just want to stop and say I'm sorry. That should not have been. It should not have been whatever that context was. But you do understand that just because, I'm not minimizing it, but just because it was misused before does not eliminate the need for it to be used rightly now. That's one barrier, past. Another would be, in our own present, if we're just honest, our idolatrous love of comfort and ease. We delude ourselves into thinking our little lives and our little church are little boats. And we don't want anything to rock our little boats. And so we'll do anything. Hide. Pretend nothing's wrong. So we don't have to deal with anything that's wrong. So we don't have to rock the boat. But my friends, if in fact the church, as individual believers, if you want to think in terms of a boat-like analogy, we have drifted in, and sunk, I'll just put it that way, into a cruise ship mentality. The church is not a cruise ship. The, ch the church is a battleship. The church is a battleship. We should expect 
some waves from time to time. And trust the one who guides us through the storms. Past, present, I'll give you another present. Well, maybe this is more fear. Yeah, this is a future, rather, because it has to do with fear. It has to do with my, what might be. We hate rejection. Most of us, we're sane. We, we, we hate that. We hate anything that smells of that, and we're scared of it. So you see, we've got these barriers of, of, of past abuse and present love of comfort, and then this future arena of, of fear of what might be. Do you see how desperately we need these trail angels? The assurances that we, we actually do have, truly do have, of the proclamation of the Father and the presence of the Son throughout this. Every part of it. Every part of it. Again, the Lord's means, his means of his love is astonishing. Oh, how we so desperately need to, to walk in them, to heed them. I'm assuming um, you're all aware to some degree or another of this uh, 12 person soccer team and their coach that was just rescued a few days ago from that cave after living in, in the cave for, I think it was like 18 days in the end, uh, flooded there in northern Thailand. Um, and, and more and more details are coming out. It almost seems by, by the hour uh, about, about things, the background, how this happened. Fascinating stuff uh, you know, in terms of, of all of that. And there's a, at least a one or two movies likely going to come out of this. Um, no, seriously. I mean, I mean, really, there's people already working on screenplays right, right now. Um, I want to read to you, though, one news piece I came across just yesterday. Now, I realize it's probably dated because so much is coming out so fast, but, but here's a good piece that's, that's worth your knowing. Master Sergeant Derek Anderson, a 32-year-old rescue specialist with the U.S. Air Force based in Okinawa, Japan, led a U.S. team that provided technical assistance for the risk, rescue effort. He said the excavation excavation, evacuation. The evacuation involved about 100 people inside the cave with dozens of people attending to each boy. He said divers practiced their techniques in a swimming pool with local children of the same height and weight as the trapped boys. As they passed through the narrow passageways in the cave, the boys sometimes journeyed through rocky sections and places so narrow only one diver could escort each one. Here's a quote from Master Sergeant Anderson. The world just needs to know that what was accomplished was a once-in-a-lifetime rescue that I think has never been done before. Who, by the way, Anderson's a native of Syracuse, New York, grew up in Ecuador as the son of missionaries. We are extremely fortunate that the outcome was the way it was. This was an amazing rescue. You can be the most cynical, hard-hearted person on the planet. This was an amazing rescue that only took place because of extraordinary effort. Those boys and the, that coach were trapped, exhausted, endangered, and hurting. And yet they were freed how? By the sacrificial actions of others who were willing to get involved. My friends, there are situations like that all around us right now. relationships in need of rescue. You may be one party in that. They will never be as dramatic as this one was.
So you will never, there will be no film crews. Nobody will make a movie about it. But the need is every bit as pressing. For someone to get involved and to show sacrificial love for the parties. Let me just read verse 14 one more time. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us your eyes for one another? Maybe there is someone that's coming to mind right now that has sinned against us. I pray that you'd help us see them through the lenses of the gospel, that you'd help us to see that that relationship is worth the effort, the sacrifice, and, in the, and the inconvenience. You've said as much, you've shown as much, dying on the cross for them. That was just a little bit of inconvenience. We ask that you would humble us. We ask that you would help us to heed this process, to be wary of the world's messages and tuned to your commands. We ask that you'd help us to hear these assurances, to heed them, to hold to them, to find life in them, to know that the stakes are very high, but higher still is your love. This is your work. May it be done your way. Help us to love. Love as we have been loved. Not to be nice, but to love. We pray in your name. Amen.